Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. She is a psychotherapist, an entrepreneur, a mental health thought leader, a public speaker, and she's the author of the brand new book, The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. Very happy to have you here today. Joyce Mortar, welcome to The Forever Student. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I was hoping we could kick off by you telling us a bit about yourself and where your passion for mental health has come from. Well, I went to college at Ohio State. I'm a Buckeye. And I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And they encouraged us to study what we were most interested in. And I found psychology fascinating because I really care about our emotions, our relationships, our connections to one another. And soon learned I needed a master's degree if I was going to stop waitressing. So I ended up coming to Northwestern for graduate school. And it was there that I found my people and was given a language and a lens through which to understand myself, my family, and the world around me. And my work as a psychotherapist has been deeply and profoundly rewarding. I find it emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually rewarding. It is high honor to get to know so many different people so deeply and to guide them through healing and self-discovery and self-transformation and to help them emancipate themselves from suffering and to live a greater life. So I am an impassioned mental health advocate. I think we all can benefit from therapy and counseling at different points in our lives. I think it's something healthy and normal and proactive. And I think we all have mental health issues, just like we have physical health issues. No shame, no stigma. Yeah, that's a very good answer. And I think, and I think there's a lot already to touch on based on what you just said. In terms of mental health and mental health issues, how have you seen, what have you seen over, let's say, the last year with COVID and with all these kind of disruptions in our lives? What have you seen the most of? And what are some things that, you know, you've recommended to people uh, in order to, to improve their respective situations, whatever they may be? So we were already in an epidemic, a mental health epidemic before the pandemic, and the pandemic added fuel to the fire. We're living through a global trauma and we're in a mental health crisis. So according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 65% of us are reporting symptoms of anxiety. 45% of us are reporting symptoms of depression. There's an increase in substance abuse. There's an increase in relationship conflict, domestic violence, child abuse, and also post-traumatic stress disorder. I think a lot of people think that PTSD is something that war veterans experience or people who have experienced horrible assault like rape. But like I said, this is a trauma what we're living through. We can't process it like we do usual life experiences. And so many of us have had PTSD symptoms. And so for the past year, I've been giving global corporate webinars on providing practical tools and tips to help people improve their mental wellness and build resilience. Okay. I know that that might be a broad subject to touch on. Um, but when we look at something like PTSD, are you also talking about like maybe adjusting back to the new normal? 
Absolutely. People have difficulty with transition, uncertainty, and change. And we've been in a state of constant transition. And many of us are feeling burnout because we're completely overwhelmed. So with the reintegration, people are experiencing health anxiety, social anxiety, financial anxiety, and a lot of concerns about work-life balance. How are they going to manage their dependent care? How are they going to be able to take care of themselves and also meet the requirements of their job? Very clear. I know just from doing my research on you that, you know, you also dealt with anxiety um, before, maybe still. Uh, I think obviously it's not something that just goes away magically and it's something that reoccurs uh, throughout our lives, no matter how mentally healthy you may be. Um, How did you or slash how do you deal with anxiety currently, both as a person suffering from it as well as someone who wants to help others deal with it. Because from my standpoint, um, you know, I, I deal with anxiety once, once in a blue moon sort of thing, but obviously I have people around me who deal with it. And there's no real clear guidance on how to be there for someone who has anxiety. Yes, absolutely. Well, when I was in graduate school, I was really afraid that my professors were going to see that I dealt with an anxiety disorder and that they were going to say, you can't be a therapist. You have your own issues. And thankfully, they they know that we all have issues. <laughs> we all have mental <laughs> health issues. And I'll let you in on a little secret. We therapists come into the field because we've had our own issues <laughs> and we often specialize in our own issues. And so they recommended that all things therapists in training, get our own psychotherapy. And that was life-changing for me to honor my past experiences and how they shaped and molded me into who I am and to honor my feelings instead of practicing self-judgment, shifting to self-compassion and tons of strategies from cognitive behavioral therapy that helps us look at our thoughts Because according to CBT, our thoughts precede our emotions and behaviors. So if we can become aware of our negative thinking or fear-based or catastrophic thinking that fuels our anxiety, and we can reprogram that through some of the exercises like thought records, we can decrease our anxiety. And so I've been in therapy on and off throughout my lifetime at different points. I think we can all benefit from it when the pandemic started and I've got teenagers at home and we were having a lot of togetherness. I called my therapist again and started therapy and definitely anxiety is something I still manage. It's kind of like having diabetes. It's something that is a part of how how I'm hardwired and how I respond to stress. And because I love the work that I do, I've had to really expand my comfort zone because when I was in graduate school, I was afraid to be called on in class. And if I was, my voice would shake. And now I'm a public speaker and I do television and I'm terrified every time. But because I want to spread my message and help people, I've had to really work on that. It's like exposure therapy. And so I practice mindfulness. I love meditation and yoga and other mindfulness practices that help really calm my mind and body and have given me a lot of resources to manage my anxiety. What are some, uh, when we look at mindfulness and meditation, I still think it's quite a broad sort of topic. Um, 
what are some, let's call them easier ways to meditate? Because I, I've had this discussion so many times before. I, I became a meditation teacher earlier this year for the sole purpose of basically simplifying the way that we learn how to meditate without it being intimidating. I just wanted to get your opinion on this as well. Like, do you have, you know, any tips or, um, or tricks that you give to people where it's like, okay, if you, if you don't want to sit with your legs crossed and focus for 30 minutes, like do this instead. Absolutely. Well, Eckhart Tolle is one of my favorite authors and he has the same publisher that I do. Sounds true. And I read this week that Eckhart said, anytime you consciously breathe and in and out, so you're aware of your breath, one breath, you've meditated. So it's, it's really that simple. Across thousands of cultures and thousands of years, they say that the breath ties together the mind, the body, and the spirit. And when we draw our attention to the breath, we become centered in the present moment and the here and now. And I think about, you know, connecting with your senses. So, so often we're in our heads and we've got that mind chatter going and there's a lot of wisdom in the body. So if you can focus on your breath and slow and deepen it and become aware of what you're feeling inside of your body, what you're hearing, what you're smelling, what you're tasting, you're getting out of your head and that promotes greater consciousness and wellness. I think even walking or running or gardening or doing the dishes can be forms of meditation. It's any time that you focus on the breath and you connect with your senses and you learn to notice your thoughts. And it is a practice because it takes some time to cultivate, but you can never do it wrong. And I think for me, even listening to music, calming music or getting out in nature, looking at the sky, pausing, looking at trees and flowers, unplugging from technology, those are all easy ways to practice mindfulness. And the research says one of the worst things that, that we do to ourselves is reach for our phones first thing in the morning and check our emails. So if you just had a morning practice of 10 minutes of stretching, breathing, doing yoga, writing in a journal, saying a prayer, meditating, uh, whatever is going to set you up for success for that day, it improves your well-being and it only takes a few minutes. The research also shows that when we're multitasking, of course, we think that we're being more productive, but we're actually causing ourselves a lot of stress and overwhelm. So if we can consciously become single taskers, we're going to make less mistakes and be more productive. So shutting down your email alerts and your social media alerts and kind of chunking your tasks. So you're doing emails at one time, you're making your phone calls at one time, because it's all the shifting gears that takes us out of consciousness. Yeah, very well said. And I think the focus on the breath, what, what I've realized is while you were saying it, I just took a deep breath in and deep breath out. And one of the things that happens is you just become so much more present immediately, right? Like whatever it is that you're concentrating on, all of a sudden your focus enhances. And I think all the other little practices that you were talking about, whether it's walking or running or smelling the flowers, like if you're focused on that one thing, uh, automatically you tend to sort of block out, you tend to block out the noise a little bit. Um, you briefly touched on, I suppose, a morning routine. And I'm, as the listeners know, obsessed with morning routines. It's all I talk about. 
Uh, so I won't go through mine, but I, I would love to hear what yours is. Well, thank you so much. I do love meditation. And so I, I have Peloton, but I also love, so I use their meditation app and I also love calm and headspace. And so I do a guided meditation for whatever I need that day. So Peloton has guided meditations for courage. So if I'm speaking or doing a podcast, that's something I'll listen to. If I'm feeling agitated, I'll listen to one for patience or whatever it is that I need. And while I'm getting ready for the day, I believe in hydrotherapy. So even being in the shower and noticing the water on your head and thinking of it as a cleanse, you know, taking away all the yuck and refreshing your energy. Or while I'm getting ready, I listen to really calm, calming music that's part of my sort of restorative yoga soundtrack. And that really helps me. Making sure that I eat a healthy breakfast is something important that I give myself extra time. I, I used to set my alarm like an hour before I needed to do something. And now I set it two hours before so that I have time to sit and have my coffee and wear my comfy robe and I'm not racing around first thing in the morning. And that helps me a tremendous amount. You mentioned um, meditation, particularly for courage. I'm very curious about this and I don't think I've ever asked anyone this question. When it comes to doing hard things, or, or things that might be difficult for you. So for instance, going on a podcast, public speaking, being on TV, uh, things that require courage and things that require you stepping outside of your comfort zone. Do you have any particular things that maybe you do that help you prepare or just generally tips for people uh, to do so? Because I think often what holds us back from doing the difficult things is particularly the feelings of, fear, I suppose. Well, Brené Brown is one of my heroes, and she talks about shame and vulnerability and the importance of authenticity. So I remind myself that I just being myself is going to help me succeed. And so connecting with that deeper self and kind of detaching from ego is helpful, you know, and focusing on helping people rather than on me <laughs> and whatever it is that I'm worried about <laughs> with about myself. And then silly things like external things that probably are related to ego, like even taking time to make sure that I have an outfit I feel confident in. Or list, I listen to Nicki Minaj, You Are the Best. <laughs> and I have music like that that pumps me up and, and helps me feel confident. I even strike body poses that are confident and hold my arms up in the air and stand tall and walk like a boss and start to really own it. And I love the work of Glennon Doyle, and she has a podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. And that really helps me too. even just that phrase I say as a mantra. I like that a lot. I haven't heard of this podcast before, so I'm definitely going to check it out and, and, and encourage listeners to do the same thing. Why I wanted to go back to therapy quickly because I feel there's a certain barrier for people to go to therapy to begin with, right? Like it's, there's, a, there's still some, like there's still quite a stigma, which is, which has become less and less and less over the years. But what do you think till today is stopping people from, I suppose, seeking help or seeing a therapist? 
I think you're right that there's still some shame and stigma and misunderstanding. And so mental health awareness is so important and education about therapy. So some of us have cultural or religious teachings or beliefs that, you know, getting help is a sign of weakness or that we should only talk to people close in our family about our personal business and not a stranger or beliefs that mental health isn't a real thing or that the therapy isn't effective. And so I think it's important. I, I, I love when companies have corporate trainings and, and people promote mental health awareness that, hey, we all deal with these issues and it's a normal response to stress. And there's help that's available and it's affordable. I think cost is another barrier. And many people don't realize that their insurance covers therapy just like it covers major medical, according to mental health parity law. And also 80% of people who are insured do have an employee assistance program, which is a free benefit that offers usually three to eight in-person or telehealth counseling sessions that are for assessment, brief treatment, and referral, and you can continue on beyond that with your insurance. And there's also community mental health centers and social services centers and therapist training programs that offer services for people who do not have private insurance and maybe have Medicaid or they need sliding fee or pro bono counseling services, and they are available and effective. And so I think also it's scary. I remember the first time I went to therapy, I was like, oh my gosh, are they going to tell me I'm crazy? Are they going to judge me? And I think it's important to know that therapists are compassionate beings who really want to see your strengths and support you. And we've seen everything. <laughs> like We're not judging you. We understand that we're all human beings. None of us is perfect. We're all works in progress. And there's so many tools that can help you manage whatever it is that you're dealing with and heal and recover. And it's not just about being in crisis. It's about actually promoting your mental health and well-being so that you can thrive and excel in your personal and professional life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is a good time to segue into a business that you founded called Urban Balance, and then you sold it, I believe, in 2017. Could you tell us a bit more about, you know, what Urban Balance is and, and what its mission is slash was? Absolutely. So I founded Urban Balance when my first daughter was one and a half years old. And my intention was I really wanted to create an insurance-friendly practice that would make therapy affordable and accessible because all the therapists would be in-network and honor the contracted rate. So for clients, that means that they'd pay maybe a $15 or $25 copay rather than paying out of pocket. And I wanted to destigmatize mental health issues and promote access to care. And as a, a mother and living in Chicago with my then husband, it's expensive. And we, I wanted to figure out a way to make an earning, make earnings when I wasn't directly seeing clients. So I thought, well, if I can provide the office space and the billing and the referrals, then maybe I can earn passive income when I'm not directly seeing clients. So I started it with a friend and colleague, and we hired one therapist at a time in our own little offices when we weren't using them. 
And then it grew and it grew tremendously. And I made a thousand mistakes and learned a lot of lessons. One of the biggest and hardest was after several years, we ended up in cash flow hell because the bigger we got, the more money was outstanding in insurance. And we sometimes weren't able to make our rent. And I late at night worried about how to make payroll. And my business partner actually left. She was so stressed out by it. She said, I I just can't do this anymore. And some of our staff left and many of our clients left. And I thought I was going to have to file business bankruptcy. And that was a life-changing time for me because instead of, I made a shift to humility and asking for help and asking for support and support came out of the woodwork. And a neighbor said, you need a business valuation and When I met with his CPA, the CPA said, your business model works. You truly have a cash flow problem and I can help you with proper lending and some business coaching. And we were able to turn the ship around. Throughout this process and throughout my practice, I became really interested in the psychology of money, how our families of origin and their beliefs about money shape our money story our emotions around money, our thoughts about money, and our relationship with money, how that shapes our financial reality. And I did a lot of work on myself in that. I noticed in my clients that as they made progress in therapy, they started to earn more money. And I was like, why is this happening? And it's because no matter what we were working on in therapy, we're always helping them with their underlying self-esteem and self-worth. And when we feel better about ourselves, we put ourselves out in the world with more confidence and more assertiveness and we negotiate. And so I, along with my team, I had so much support, was able to improve Urban Balance and prepare it for sale. And I sold Urban Balance for more money than I thought I would ever make in a lifetime. I had started it with $500 and 50,000 of student loans and sold it when it was grossing over 5 million. And I want to help others do the same, that there really are tools from psychology that can help you improve your mental health and financial health. Okay, so many questions. The first, the first question is, um, you mentioned that one of your lessons was humility and asking for help. And I think the reason you learned that lesson is because you were, um, because you needed to to happen at that point. What do you think stops people from asking for help? So many things. I think pride, ego, fear. I was afraid that someone would tell me that my business didn't work. I think sometimes cultural or gender messages like, you know, man up, you know, it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. Or for me, kind of, it's, you don't want to be an imposition, be a good girl. And, you know, I think shame keeps people from asking for help, Uh, maybe fear of rejection that other people won't be willing. It's very vulnerable. But when you do ask for help and support, which is something with the pandemic, the higher our stress is, the more self-care we need and the more support we need. And so we have to prioritize those two things. And we are interdependent as human beings. And when we ask for support, it allows other people to be of service to us. And and there's blessings in that. And it also makes us stronger. Great answer. 
You mentioned self-esteem as well. Um, I would like to touch on that a little bit, just in terms of what you would define as healthy self-esteem. But more importantly, how can we go about building it? What are some steps that we can take in order to become more self-confident, I suppose? Absolutely. So this might sound kind of funny, but I always say that healthy self-esteem is midway between diva and doormat. (laughs) And dudes can be divas too. So the diva and the doormat are two sides of ego. And I think a lot of people think of the diva as as a representation of ego because divas are kind of grandiose and entitled and not respectful of other people's boundaries. But doormats also have that's another aspect of ego. It's it's low they're both manifestations of low self-worth. And the doormat is somebody who doesn't value themselves and allows their own boundaries to be compromised. And healthy self-esteem is in the in the middle. It's when we have good ego strength in that we can be confident and and we're respectful of ourselves and others in relationships. And we also are connected with our deeper self, our our essence, our, our core being or our soul. And we operate from that more conscious and compassionate place. So I think healthy self-esteem is that when we can embrace our strengths and we can honestly look at some of our challenges and areas of needed growth without shame, but with compassion and awareness. And we operate in the world with emotional intelligence that we have awareness that we're not perfect, we're works in progress, where we have empathy and compassion for others, and we strive for collaboration. Okay, and then final definition before we get into your book, and that is success, because I feel success is extremely subjective, uh, but more often than not, it's, it's defined through financial success rather than anything else. What is your definition of success? And, and we can get a bit deeper into it once you go into it. We need to redefine our definition of success because if we, if we define our definition of success by financial alone, we're not going to be happy. And so success needs to be, there needs to be a holistic definition of success that in, includes mental well-being, financial well-being, work-life balance, connected relationships, and, you know, feeling inner peace and prosperity. So I talk about a life of abundance, which is really having all of that, having balance. And so, and I, I believe success is when we live life openly and honestly and authentically to the greatest extent possible. When we align our gifts with a need in the world and we take responsibility for that and we work to be of service to ourselves and others. I think that takes a certain amount of self-awareness in order to become successful as per your definition. Do you have any recommendation or tips on how to become more self-aware and how to truly get in touch with our with ourselves? I do think that the mindfulness practices that we talked about earlier are a wonderful way to connect with that deeper self. And then also being open to feedback from others. And that's one of the benefits of therapy and counseling is that you're going to get some honest feedback and you're going to be challenged to look at yourself more deeply. And I think having the courage to ask your loved ones and friends and family for 
their perspectives on aspects of you and to work at not being defensive, but really listening and learning from that. And so it's, it's really a process and sometimes it's difficult and scary, but it's important for our growth. And so it's about also making amends when we, when we've hurt some, someone or we've made a mistake or done something wrong. It's about taking responsibility for that and expressing that we're sorry and really meaning that. And then also learning how to forgive ourselves when we've made mistakes and how to then move forward. Yeah, completely agreed. Let's move on to your book. Um, I'm super curious about this and very, very excited to read it. It's a book called The Financial Mindset Fix. What inspired you to write it, firstly? And then we can get into, you know, what it's about and, and, and how readers will benefit from it. One of the greatest benefits of being a therapist is reaping the wisdom of my clients. And I've had the honor of working with now thousands of people from different cultures and different walks of life. And I have identified 12 mindsets that lead to holistic success. And these are universal truths. So for the past 15 years, I've been giving a keynote address nationally called the psychology of success. And it's people love it. And, and the feedback has been really positive. They found it inspiring and motivating and clarifying. And so that is the bones of the book these 12 mindsets. And I hired a researcher who worked with me on the book, and we found that each of these mindsets is empirically proven to improve both mental health and financial health. So the book has some of my story and journey, really inspiring stories from my clients, and also practical tools and exercises that are proven from psychology to help readers build these skills. Okay, amazing. Could you give us I don't want you to give everything away, obviously, but could you give us maybe one or two of the 12? Absolutely. One of them is abundance, an abundance mindset. So some of us have a scarcity mindset. And with the pandemic, that definitely caused a scarcity mindset, that there's not enough resources for all of us and we have to be competitive. Think of the toilet paper thing or more recently, the gas <laughs> thing. And, and so a, an abundance mindset is when we don't set our own ceilings and we don't have self-limiting beliefs. So when people have a scarcity mindset, they say, I've noticed this in my practice. Oh, I could never do that. That's not going to work out for me. Oh, I tried that, but you know, that's never going to happen. That's someone setting their own ceilings. And an abundance mindset is when you expand your thinking that there's so much more that's possible and you embrace creativity and openness. And so I, I teach people how to shift from scarcity to abundance. And I also talk about detachment, which I've had some people say like, Ooh, detachment, that's a bad thing. But I'm not talking about being disconnected or aloof. I'm talking about a mindfulness practice of consciously detaching from negative emotions and from the negative emotions of others. And it, it, it doesn't mean that we don't care or that we're not compassionately connected. We can practice detachment with love where we have healthy separation from our own fears and anxieties and we observe them 
and we learn to surf them rather than allowing them to overcome us. And same with other people that we learn to have healthy separation from the negative emotions of others so that we can stay well and we're actually better able to help people then. And in business and finance, you have to have some detachment in order to have risk tolerance. Otherwise, you're going to be so afraid. It's like investing in the stock market. If you watch it every day, you're going to freak out when there's a drop. But if you can take a step back and zoom out and look at the bigger picture and practice some detachment, you'll do well over time. I like that. I learned a lot about attachment and detachment myself, particularly from things. So also outside of emotions, like also looking at things like our phone and our, you know, and Netflix and maybe even people, right? Like the reliance on our parents or our friends to make us feel better rather than putting the work in yourself. And, um, and I think it's a fascinating topic and I never really explored it from, I suppose, the emotional side that much, but that's, that'll be very exciting to read about. I think one thing I wanted to just go back to the abundance piece is when you go from, what are some tips to go from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset? Like, are there practices that are, um, that have proven effective in doing so? Because I think it's, it's so difficult, like going, at least from, from my understanding, like it's not something that just happens overnight. Like it requires a lot of practice. Uh, I started doing it a lot throughout my meditations where I would meditate on abundance or I would journal on abundance um, and sort of try to, you know, rewire your thinking and rewiring your brain to an extent. Is there anything else that, that you recommend? I think becoming conscious of your language and when you're setting your own ceilings. For example, I noticed when I first started out in my career, the average starting salary for a therapist was $18,000 a year in Chicago. And I thought I heard of one person that made $25,000. So I said, okay, I want to make $25,000. And I got a job making that, but no more. And then I wanted to make more money because it was difficult. And I wanted to make 35000 And I got a job making just that. Then I had coffee with my friend Steve when we both started our practices. And he said, Joyce, how much money do you want to make? And I said, I'd like to make 60. And he said, ooh, I want to make over 100. And I said, do you think that's possible? And he said, of course it's possible. That year I made 60 and Steve made over 100. And I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this to myself. I'm setting my own ceilings. Steve went on to win Shark Tank and was on Oprah's Favorite Things. So I'm like, I'm going to do what Steve does. So I started thinking, okay, I'm going to make millions of dollars. (laughs) And I know that sounds silly, but when you start to think that, it helps. And there's a technique in Adlerian psychology that's called act as if. And so my book was rejected for 10 years by publishers. And so I decided to use this technique and I would walk around my house and I'd say, I am a best-selling author and international speaker like my hero, Brene Brown. And my best friend, who's a therapist, accused me of psychotic optimism. But she helped me with that. She'd say, oh, I can't wait to go on your book tour, tour in New York. And here I am. I have the same publisher as Brene Brown. And next week I go on a book tour in New York. So we have to kind of believe that it's possible. We have to open our thoughts that, that 
that's within the realm of possibility. I like vision boards and, and, you know, basically making an image of everything you want to bring into your life. I, there's another technique in counseling that's called um, the miracle question. And I always say to people, if you had a magic wand, what would you like your work life to look like? And a lot of times people make it kind of small and I'm like, no, let's, let's go bigger. (laughs) Let's go bigger with that. And people come alive. You know, I think, I think it's, it's scary to want more, but it's not about greed. It's not about material possessions. When we have more, we can help more. We can be philanthropists. We can lift others up. We can provide jobs. And so we, if we each do our work and our growth by cultivating abundance, we can change the world, I believe. And do you believe that there's a link between abundance and intention? Absolutely. I think, you know, author Wayne Dyer said, our intentions create our reality. And so when we have an intention that is in the highest service of ourselves and others and is compassionate and ethical and from a good place in your heart, that welcomes abundance. That's the key to abundance. It, if, if you create a business that's a win-win for, for yourself, your clients, and your employees, that's conscious capitalism. And I, I believe the universe will reward you with that financially, spiritually, emotionally, et cetera. Yeah, because when, when you said the miracle question, I've never heard that before, and I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just do that exercise alone, I suppose, and, and just go through that. Because I feel like if the answers are... One, obviously authentic, but two, that the intention behind it is pure, then the likelihood of it happening or the likelihood of it coming to life uh, is, is more realistic and, and more likely than if the intention is bad, if that makes sense. A few years ago in Michigan, at the beginning of the speaking engagement, I asked everyone to walk around and introduce themselves. And they were like, oh, hi, I'm Joe. I'm a therapist that works at this agency. And it was really flat. And then after we did some of these exercises, I wanted them to get up and introduce themselves as if they'd already accomplished what their magic wand goal was. And people were super awkward. They were like, they didn't stand up. They were looking at each other and they're like, really? Like we should say it. And I was like, yeah. And then they started doing it and the room got so loud. People were so excited and they were like, I'm a Nobel prize winner and I'm a global CEO. And, and they were happy and excited and I couldn't get them to stop talking. And I've received emails from some people that they have achieved some of those things. They started their own business or started a foundation and thanked me for that workshop. So I think that's pretty cool. So I'm really curious to go a little bit deeper into this because I like this. So if you if you have this miracle question and you go about answering it, maybe you're writing it down, maybe you're saying it out loud. I feel like firstly, uh, if I'm not wrong, you're saying it almost as if it happened already. Yes, exactly. Like affirmations okay. you're supposed to say in the present tense. So let's say that now you've written them down and you're saying it. Uh, maybe you have a vision board. Maybe you have a vision board as well that you created. When it comes to um, your day to day, is it something that you encourage people, you know, repeat on a daily basis? Is there other work that you recommend them putting in? Because I'm a big believer in manifesting, but I'm also a very big believer of hard work. 
right? I don't, I don't believe in, I don't believe in just the vision boards and just the miracle question. I also believe in like, okay, putting intentional and purposeful work in, but just from your experience with, especially the success stories, how have they come to life? Has it been something where they were like, okay, we're going to repeat this every day and we're going to put in very intentional work in parallel? Exactly. Right on the nose. Repeating those intentions. I have my vision board hanging in my office. I have mantras that I say regularly, but I also have a chapter. One of the mindsets that I I talk about is responsibility. We have to do the work. And we can't blame other people or the economy. We have to take action and we have to take the steps to make our vision come to reality. And I have one of the mindsets is vision and coming up with a one-year, three-year, five-year plan, coming up with a personal manifesto and a professional mission. And then another, another chapter is on support about having a personal and professional advisory board that's going to help you make that vision become a reality um, because we can't do it on our own. We, we're interdependent and we're constantly learning. So there's a lot that's involved. My program's very comprehensive. It's not easy. <laughs> it's, you know, some of the, the tips are easy, but it's, it's a practice. It's a way of life. And so you, you have to do the practice, the self-care and do the exercises and we're all works in progress. And sometimes we have to revisit some of the chapters and rework them as well. So within the book on these 12 points, you're also giving exercises and, and actual things that people need to be doing. Yes, there, there are tons of exercises in the book journaling prompts. I have mock therapy sessions where I ask questions to get you thinking that you're going to journal about. I have exercises from cognitive behavioral therapy to help you change your thinking. And my favorite exercises are these wheels that I created that are a self-assessment tool to see how you're doing on cultivating each of these mindsets. And I think they're so much fun. They're really interesting. I've been using them with my therapy clients and in my speaking engagements, and it promotes a lot of insight and interesting discussion. So I'm excited to see how people respond to those. Amazing. Where can people find your book? So it's available on Amazon and Target and all the major retailers, indie books. But you can also check out financialmindsetfix.com, which is a page on my website that has links to all of that. And again, uh, my name is Joy Smarter and my website is joysmarter.com, J-O-Y-C-E-M-A-R-T-E-R.com. Okay, fantastic. And are you on social media as well? I am. And I would love Instagram followers. My poor little Instagram is so sad and it's it's so hard to build that up. So I would love any Instagram love. But yes, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and, and all of the social media handles. Fantastic. So what we'll do is we'll make sure to in the show notes to put your Instagram handle, to put your bio, to put your website and where people can find the book. We are very grateful that you made the time uh, to join us today and, and talk about this. I learned a lot and I'm very excited to uh, to order the book and, and get to work. So thank you so much for being here today, Joyce. My pleasure. Thank you, Stephen.